The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 173 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own, not that of my president or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence or privileged tools as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently alone have held in the past United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Last week, we had uh, Director of Security Operations for Online Business Systems, Alan Espinoza. He rejoined me on episode 172. He provided his perspective on cyber resiliency during the pandemic and, man, the recent weather events that he experienced down in Texas, as many others had to endure through. Mr. Espinoza also discussed his perspective on the future of cybersecurity operations and cybersecurity talent post-COVID-19 pandemic. And we finished up the show with Alan providing his advice for new practitioners entering the cybersecurity market and how opportunities have now opened up for those that don't live in hop job markets due to the uptick in working remotely. Don't miss everything we had to say on last week's episode, folks. If you miss it, don't sweat it. We're on at least 11 playback, playback mediums. You can find us everywhere. That's Security Operations, Resiliency, and Talent on last week's episode. That's episode number 172 of Task Force 7 Radio. So tonight, we got a very special guest for you tonight. I got I to gotta be honest. This person is like an OG in the investigations world and a true mentor to me. And I'll be honest, at some points in my life, he's been like a father figure to me. We've got retired cyber investigator, Mr. Dave Ostertag on the show tonight. Dave recently retired after 10 years as the global investigations manager for investigative response unit at Verizon has more than 40 years of investigative experience in the government and security arenas. Dave acted as a chief operating officer for global security services at Verizon, coordinated the forensic investigations conducted by the investigative response unit worldwide. Dave has taken the lead on many highly publicized large data compromised investigations over the past few years, including target payment system breach. In addition, Mr. Ostertag is considered a leader in criminal and civil investigative techniques, is a certified expert witness, and is a frequent instructor and speaker on the topics of data compromise investigation and international criminal organizations. Mr. Ostertag worked as a retail regional investigator prior to joining going into police work. Dave spent 14 years as a police detective sergeant and four years as a state's attorney investigator. Mr. Ostertag was the global manager of field investigation for Discover Financial for over 10 years prior to joining Verizon. He also has worked extensively with law enforcement in the investigation, identification, arrest, and prosecution of individuals and groups involved in international organized crime, data compromise, and fraud. 
Mr. Ostertag, co-author of the original Payment Card Industry Data Security System, the PCI DSS, and for 10 years was a member of the Board of Directors and Board of Advisors for the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. It's my pleasure to introduce retired cyber investigator, Mr. Dave Ostertag. Dave, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, brother. Thanks, Andy. Nice to talk to you, man. Long time no talk to, long time work together. I know, brother. Man, I got to tell you, I am like crazy excited to have you on the show today. It's been way too long. Like, it's a real treat for me and our audience to have you here. People that don't know you like need to know you. <laughs> like, you, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, you know that saying where they go, you, you stand on the shoulders of the people that came before you? Like the industry is like your Dave is Dave, your back has got to be killing you because the industry has been standing on your shoulders for years. And I don't know how many people really know that, <laughs> but man, is it true? So, man, you've got such an interesting trajectory. I, I always get the question, you know, coming from the Secret Service, being on the streets to then going into cyber. And people actually don't even remember me as like, you know, physical security guy anymore. They just think of cyber. And uh, but you, you had a path like that over a span over, you know, four decades um, and you saw a whole bunch of stuff, bro. So how did that transition happen for you? Can you talk about your background and just how you made that transition from being on the streets, you know, getting shot at, to you know, getting in the cyber? Sure, Andy. Thanks. Right off the bat, I'd like to say, though, that, you know, I'm just one of many. There, there's a lot of us in, and it, it's funny how fate brought us all together, but uh, talking about my background, really interesting and 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 sh- a great example to show how things that happen in your life come back many years later to uh, you know to help steer your career, and you never know what direction you're going to go into. So, as far as cyber, I learned computer science during Vietnam. Um, I was an avionics. Um, technician on F-111 aircraft doing radar navigation gear, bomb nav, radios, things like that. So in 1973, the, um, the government in the Air Force sent me through computer science school to learn old analog computers, uh, navigation computers now that you probably have more technology in your watch than, than were in those aircraft. But you know, learning basic computer science way back then in the 70s on those old um, analog tape-fed navigation computer systems. So after the war, got in the police department, and then we moved to about 1982, so nine years after I learned computers and and hadn't thought about it at all. You know, in in the world at that point, we had Apple IIEs and Commodore 64s and and things like that just just starting – uh, use, you know, people started getting those old black screen with green print computers in their houses. So um, obviously, as soon as there's any type of technology, the bad guys are going to explore that. So um, at that point, according to the police department, because I knew everything there was to know about computers, they mm-hmm. sent me through computer <laughs> forensics class in 1982. So I've been doing computer forensics since 1982. So started with, on, on the police department, on, you know, on um, very simple systems doing you know, computer forensics in, in support of crimes. And in that, ended up on a, uh, on a homicide uh, task force 
um, and started using technology in ways that people probably didn't think about. I, I know in the state of Illinois, uh, proved a double murder uh, case off of cell phone triangulation off of cell phone towers for the, the first time and used that in the case to, uh, to get a conviction. So taking what I knew uh, from computer science and from electronics and technology and applying that to crime in, in, uh, in mostly those homicide cases. So then in uh, 1991, had a bad day at the office and I got shot up in, uh, in a gunfight. I took a through and through nine millimeter, hit me in the chest and, and came out my right butt cheek. So I stayed for three more years in the police department there. Again, mostly doing uh, murder cases. Uh, retired in a medical disability and went to the, uh, the county prosecutor's office. So I spent four years there uh, doing uh, uh, computer forensics and, and investigations into uh, official misconduct. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of computer forensics in that, particularly in cases like uh, you know, a highway commissioner that was taking kickbacks going into his system and finding the evidence of the kickbacks and you know, murder cases looking, uh, unfortunately, people uh, will do some research before they, they do murder case, you know, do a murder. So go into their systems, find their, their search patterns, find out what they were looking at, you know, even see plans in, in some cases for, uh, for what they're going to do. So again, spent four years there and then uh, got a phone call from uh, Gene Conley who is a retired uh, FBI agent and at that time was the uh, head of security for Discover Card. So Gene called me and made me an offer I couldn't refuse to uh, run uh, field investigations for Discover Card. So I spent the next uh, 10 plus years at Discover uh, managing the field investigators, and coordinating with law enforcement. And in that, um, if we look back, um, uh, back to those times in the early early uh, 90s, uh, or to, I'm sorry, the late 90s, uh, when we look back to that time, one of the most prevalent types of uh, credit card fraud at the time was skimming, you know, where <clears throat> you would go to one of those places where you would uh, hand over your card to somebody, they would take it out of your presence to, to complete the, the credit card transaction, you know, places like restaurants and parking garages, places like that, um, they would skim the cards. There'd be a, a, a portable uh, skimming device that many times would look like a pager uh, on, on a waiter's belt that had a card slot on it and and um, chip inside to record the Magstripe data. So as the waiter would take the card up to the, uh, the cash register, they'd do a simple swipe through the device and it would record you know, the, the ones and zeros on the, uh, on the mag stripe. And then later they would take that information and re-encode it on a, uh, either on another card or on a piece of white plastic, and then uh, be able to conduct uh, card present fraud by swiping the card um, in a fraudulent transaction. So way back then, um, I had a case where, uh, the fraud looked like skimming fraud, um, but the fraud, even though the, the point of compromise, the place where it was obvious that the, the card data was stolen, the Magstripe data was stolen, were various merchants all over the United States, the fraud was exactly the same at exactly the same time, exactly the same merchants. 
cards that had been compromised at, at different merchants around the country would be used at the same time in the, in the same merchant spot. So obviously there was some commonality between these, these merchants. So you know, understanding computer science, understanding electrical path and data path and things like that, um, I called uh, six of the merchants that were all involved in these compromised cards and asked them to describe to me the, the data path from the time that the, the cards were swiped at the point of sale to the time that they went into the, the payment card networks for authorization. So in, in interviewing these six separate merchants over the phone, found that there was a common credit card processor in Redmond, Washington that, uh, that they all used. So obviously there was a problem at that, at that one point. That was the, the common denominator, the common point between all six of these merchants. So working for Discover Card, um, I wasn't gonna go out and do the forensic examination myself. So I called the team at, at Ubizen, uh, which was uh, Brian Sarton and Chris Novak, uh, knowing that they, they did uh, at that point uh, single system computer forensics, and I hired them to go to Redmond, Washington, and do a uh, uh, forensic examination of that that server that was used in in processing credit card transactions. And sure enough, they found that that uh, that system had been compromised. That uh, someone had gotten in. The system was was. Uh, configured so that it, it kept logs of every transaction, including the, uh, the Magstripe data, and, and that log had been accessed and downloaded. So, so yeah. hey, man, at that, at that point, that's like, uh, like game-changing in the trajectory of cybercrime investigations, right? Fraud investigations. I mean, you, you, in essence, started to work through, you know, like fraud analytics, at the bank, you know, on the, on the payment networks, right. That starts to change the, now the, the ability to conduct, you know, long, longer term forensic investigations around the globe. Like this is the beginning of an era, dude. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, that was the, the first one where data had actually been compromised. There was one, there was one um, network compromise prior to that at first data where bad guys had gotten in and gotten, you know, gotten to some, some transaction logs, but didn't, weren't able to get them out. So the, uh, the payment card processor was the first successful uh, payment card hack where data was stolen. It started in industry, you know, at that, that was the first one. And obviously more came, you know, yeah. information Dude, cannot- quick to the bad guys. Right. Yeah, man, I cannot wait to dive into this more. But hey, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break. So hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram at searching at TF7 Radio. You'll be connected to the extended TF7 family or social media platform. For increased regard to sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause some quick messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back with my pal and retired cyber investigator, Mr. Dave Ostertag. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with retired cyber investigator, Mr. Dave Ostertag. So, Dave, right before the break, you just dropped a bomb on everybody, right? Like you saw the first data breach in the payment card space. Things had to just take off from there. Tell me what happened next. So, over the next year, two years, we see an explosion of payment card breaches, um, hacks, so at the time, there were there were basically four of us in the industry. You know, I was representing Discover. You had uh, Todd Evans in America Express, Ingrid Byerly at uh, um, at Visa, Neil McGuire at Mastercard, and you know we started exchanging information and and start looking at the problem because it's just proliferating like like nothing we had ever seen. You know, fraud losses are going through the roof. The number of of hacks were were tremendous. So as we conducted these investigations, obviously one of the uh, the things we were looking for was, you know, how did it occur? What were the security gaps that allowed these these breaches to happen? And we started compiling these, and then and then started education campaigns, you know, for the processors, for the merchants, into, you know, these are the the, the security weaknesses that uh, are causing these these breaches. Here's what you need to do to fix it. And collectively, you know, we hit brick walls. You know, merchants wouldn't listen. They didn't care. It's not my money. The, the processors were the same way. You know, I don't care. Why am I going to spend money, you know, fixing these security gaps when it doesn't affect me? It affects you guys. So during this time, we all started writing our own security standards for our, our customers, our merchants. And, you know, after a while, we, we decided as a group, 
to write one standard. And, and as a group had teams that developed that, the, uh, the DSS, the uh, Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, which was the first ever cybersecurity standard. After that, obviously, through the decades, there have been a, a variety of, of ISO standards, NIST standards, and, and, and things like that. But, but as the breaches expanded, as we see more and more of them, we started seeing more than just the payment card breaches. You know, we see instances where other data is taken. And in some of those cases, it was in support of financial fraud. You know, one example of this that, that was widespread for about 10 years was, you know, the bad guys would get access to bank account numbers for high value uh, uh, customers at banks, you know, people with millions of dollars in their accounts. And, you know, as you know, we were working on these hacking cases uh, within the financial industry, there were other efforts such as the, uh, uh, the credit bureaus in establishing secondary authentication questions to verify who a customer might be because, you know, the bad guys are getting these account numbers and we're trying to take over those accounts. So uh, the, the credit bureaus moved to use of secondary, you know, lifestyle type questions, you know, what's your dog's name, what kind of car you drive, things like that. So as a result of that, we started seeing hacks for, for that type of data. You know, obviously the credit bureaus would rent information data off of uh, veterinary clinics, off of car dealerships, you know, those places where those secondary, the answers to those secondary authentication questions came from, they would rent that information. Well, the bad guys figured this out. You know, we know where the customer lives, so we just do hacks of veterinary clinics, car dealerships, all of these other businesses that um, the credit bureaus get that information from, the bad guys would build basically the same database to have the answers. At the same time, we start seeing intellectual property being stolen, you know, either from uh, uh, industrial espionage, you know, one, one business trying to steal, you know, the, the secret information from another business. I, I remember one time going to McDonald's and them telling me that, you know, one of the greatest secrets of McDonald's has is the ratio of pickles in the special sauce for, for the Big Mac. So you see that type of d data being stolen. And, and during this time, also, you start to see the, the, um, the beginning of state-sponsored, state-affiliated actors, you know, going after um, um, systems within other countries, information in other countries. You start to see the use of, of cyber attacks in support of ground attacks. You know, one of the first examples of this is when Russia invaded Georgia, you know, at the same time, you know, there was an attack on command and communication, on, on the electrical systems, things like that within Georgia from Russian cyber actors that, that were supporting the ground attack, the ground invasion into, uh, into Georgia by the Russian ground forces. So as the payment card industry, as Ingrid and Todd and Neil and I, you know, communicated with each other and, and exchanged information, you know, the different government agencies within the United States and country to country, or exchanging information and building data, building intelligence on, on the adversaries within the cyberspace. During this period of time, Andy, I remember talking to you and your team about 
how a lot of the state affiliated actors that were doing nation state versus nation state type attacks were exactly the same people, the same identities, the same people as we saw in the financial crimes. So, yeah, they they moonlight a little bit, right? Like as soon as they, uh, the, the, they needed to go from a financially motivated scenario to being empathetic to the state cause, right? They'd put a little pause on, <laughs> on their, on their day job and, and hop over and make sure that they were, you know, make, uh, doing their part. <laughs> oh yeah. It was, it was tough in those days. I, I mean, you remember one guy that we were trying to get in Russia. We, you know, we were dealing through the state department, trying to get this guy, in in U.S. custody because he had done billions of dollars of, of damage to the financial industry. The State Department runs into a brick wall with with Russia because this guy supports the government there. You know, he owns he owns a, a, a couple of railroads, I think, six banks. He supported the, the the local government completely. You know, he was he was basically the finance uh, uh, section of of the local government, and these guys are doing you know, supporting the the, the, the the national government in their country. So it was really difficult to get a hold of these guys. And, and they were all tied together. You know, I remember conversations back then where we would see the different pieces of, of the criminal activity, you know, from the hacker to the data broker, to the, the counterfeiters, to the, you know, people sending the bad guys out to, to use the data. You know, we, we thought that there were these completely separate criminal groups doing each section of this. And as time went on, you know, intelligence community, the, the finance industry, you know, the, the law enforcement started collecting information and, and sharing and correlating that data. We find that it's, it's all one small group of people, you know, that, that have both a, the, a social network and, and a business network together, that they weren't separate, that they were all part of you know, a, a big combined group around the world. And, you know, we, we thought that the, the, the Eastern Europeans were separate from the Middle Easterners, were separate from, the, you know, the, the Asians groups. And what we found out through the years was that they were all tied together. You know, when one piece of malware would would be used by the Russians, you know, within hours, uh, Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians would be using it. So, you know, they were, they were probably better than, than we were, you know, at exchanging information, cooperating and, and, and uh, building on what each other knew. Yeah, and they're not bound by, by laws, right? I mean, you talk about the Russia scenario. I mean, look at the, the laws in Russia for you know investigating cybercrime like it's like you have to put the person at the computer and watch them actually do it for it to mean anything yeah. right like in essence like an, an fsb you know intelligence mission <laughs> that's never going to happen yeah i so, i remember educating prosecutors you know on on you know the prosecutor telling me well i'm not sitting next to the bad guys and he's not telling me what it you know what his intention is what he's doing you want know, right. to educate them on on what evidence was you know and how to use evidence in those prosecutions right you bring up a really good point man and it's really no different than like what people in like the it shops around the world experience too right with like change management right like, you know you've got a problem you, you know you've got a lack of education and awareness not everyone is, you know, has that exposure to the real world scenarios around how this stuff, you know, is. And then you've got to go and try to socialize these issues, get people to, to edu- be educated and understand them, and then buy, buy into making change, right? Like, what were some of the things that you experienced with regards to 
getting law enforcement up to speed, um, getting other companies to, to be a victim and come forward and say, Hey, you're a part of this thing. Like, let's go after this together. You know, what were some of those things that you experienced? Sure. A, a lot of it is, is people really didn't understand, you know, what the cyber world was and, and how it operates. So a lot of what I did, what a lot of, you know, other people did at that time was just break down what happens in the cyber world to the physical world. You know, take, for example, a, a, a big network breach with, with data being taken, comparing that to a, a physical commercial burglary, you know, where you have a, a big compound and uh, first you have to get through the perimeter fence then you have to gain access into maybe one building within the network. You might have to take alarm systems and, and somehow um, shut them off or, or, or you know, do some type of activity that would, that would you know, not allow you to be dis, you know, dis discovered. You move from building to building, you know, similar in a network, moving from system to system or network segment for network segment, and finally getting into the building that houses the data or, or the jewels or, or you know, whatever the information is or, or, or piece of property that has value is, and then moving into the room that physically holds the safe, you know, which is the network segment that, that has the database you're trying to get to and finally getting to the database itself or the safe and getting access into that database and, and admin level credentials that give you access to steal the data getting into physically getting into the safe itself and stealing the data. And then in, in the instance of a commercial burglary, maybe you have to find a fence that, that deals in that type of, of valuable that you stole and, and can sell to someone that can then use it. You know, within the cyber industry, you have the same thing. You have the data brokers that take the data, that market it to someone that can use it, and then going through the steps of actually using it. So an, an awful lot of explaining cyber in terms like that, where, where people can understand it, and also, um, particularly the prosecutors, and, and, and in some cases, the judges, you know, going in for, for continuing education for, for magistrates and judges, in breaking it down in terms like that to where they can, they can understand and apply what is known to, you know, the, the average individual that might be sitting on a jury, so that you know, they can then explain it in terms that, that you know, people understand. Um, Understanding that the cyber world is really no different than the physical world is, you know, it's just, again, a virtual world as opposed to, you know, physical doors and, and walls and ceilings and floors. So, so it's interesting, man, because I feel like when we were investigating, you know, when things were really heating up, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you identify the first one, you, you know, you're paying for forensic investigations all over the place. People are starting to come on board with the idea of like, wow, we're, we're being targeted as a, as a payment system. And there's a lot of victims out there, but there was still this sense of like, who's behind this stuff. And we didn't have anyone to really point to as like, you know, the face of this stuff and like to really get it to drive home. I remember when we were working on all the uh, major breaches around like Target and Heartland and all that stuff. Right. And there was a sense in the financial sector of like, 
man, like we're getting crushed, but yet we have no real face to put this to. Hmm. And I felt like after we put a face to that and we started arresting people and we could go out to the world and say, these are the, the people behind that, that made it a little easier for people to consume fast forward. You've got the next version of like, say a Stuxnet, right? Which, you know, you start to look at that's that state, you know, that, that um, kind of hallmark for destructive malware. And now you got solar winds, which is that, ex- that, that poster child for people recognizing what advanced nation state activity looks like, right? So we've had these like kind of watershed moments where people start to see like, oh, I can point to those things to say, oh, now I understand what they were talking about. Like, wh- where do you think things are kind of like going next now that solar wind, people start to really understand what an advanced nation state attack looks like at a macro level? Like, how do you think that is going to, you know, drive awareness? And where do you think things will go from here? Well, I, I, I'll go back to a couple couple things real quickly is, is you know, to that point of putting a face to it. You know, remember back when uh, probably one of the biggest cases you and I worked that, that's, you know, in the Secret Service Museum these days as, as one of their premier cases was when, uh, you know, working at Discover was able to see both uh, – uh, the fraud side and the compromise side, and uh, through that found a pattern early on. I think the third merchant of there appeared to be someone that was that was uh, accessing large chain retailers through wireless. You know, somewhere in South Florida, on 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 in Miami, in particular, right. off of South Dixie Highway. You know, and after the third one started seeing these compromises and I would call the merchants. And the first question I would ask the merchant is, do you have a store location within this mile and a half segment of South Dixie highway in Miami? And they would say, yeah, would send in the forensics and find that there was a a wireless compromise, you know, where the the wireless point was used as the initial point of compromise to then compromise the entire network. And from that identified Albert Gonzalez and a lot of people that worked with him and, you know, we thought that Albert was war driving up and down South Dixie Highway, finding wireless points and find out later that he had a, a rooftop antenna that connected to a laptop in his mom's house on South Dixie Highway, you know, with, with marks on the wall where the different stores were. And that was how he was accessing them. And that ended up being the largest case in history. And, and Albert became a face for that, you know, little known fact for, for folks who, who've heard about Albert, but don't know you know, much about his lifestyle, you know, besides the million dollars buried in his backyard was the fact that he was the guy that threw the white parties for P. Diddy in in his apartments based off of all the money he was making off credit card fraud. So, you know, that's one face that that everybody started seeing what these these global networks look like. And then another instance would be 2012, when in that summer, we we started having a problem between Iran and the United States. You know, it looked like that, that there might be a shooting war building between the United States and Iran. And at the same time, you know, all of this was going on and it was looked like things were breaking down really bad. Uh, Iranian state affiliated actors hit the financial industry in the United States really hard in DDoS attacks. Um, major financial institutions were being taken to their knees with these massive DDoS attacks that had never been seen in volume in, in the past. And, you know, and we get an idea who they are and what they're doing at that point. 
you know, to, to your question about, you know, what, what do I see is happening in the future? Things are breaking down again, you know, um, um, Iran, Israel, the United States obviously are having problems. Uh, there are a lot of people predicting that that may turn into a shooting war. We look at uh, the South China Sea and, and Taiwan and actions taking, taken by um, the, the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. It's how things are breaking down there. You know, the, the attacks that we've seen in the past um, very well may, may start coming up again. You know, if, if I were in charge of a network, if I was uh, information security officer uh, for any government agency or for any business, I would be taking a strong look now at, at you know, how my network might be taken down, how I might be disrupted, how my data might have value to somebody. Um, no doubt that, that uh, there are state-affiliated actors uh, using things like Huawei, using things like uh, TikTok and things like that to, to access personal data. So that, that's where I see things going. Yeah, man, it's going to be interesting to see how things play out. Um, you know, so for, from your standpoint, Dave, like, I mean, you're touching on a whole bunch of stuff, right? And you know, you started, <laughs> you know, back in the military on the streets. Um, and, you know, you obviously have amassed a whole bunch of, you know, uh, amassed a whole bunch of perspective through the, through your years, but what's that one thing that you've learned that's kind of been consistent throughout, you know, your tenure, like as you've been navigating your different, the different, you navigated your career, what was that one thing that kind of kept you able to, you know, you know, kind of see the future or keep you one step ahead as you were looking at these things. You were always part of everything you were working on was groundbreaking every, every step of the way. Like what's that thing that kept you, made you see where, where the puck was going? I, I think one thing that I've learned, I mean, if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that things don't change. You know, people say that the breaches now are the most complicated we've ever seen, or they're really not. When you look at them, they use the same weaknesses. You know, going back to those that that first year after the first payment card breach, those security gaps that we saw then, those weaknesses that that were taken advantage of, and the methodologies that were used to to compromise those systems, we see now. You know, these these complicated breaches we see now are simply more more automated or, you know, or faster or, or, or spread across the network more, but the basic techniques stay the same. And, and through the years, at the same time, we found out that, that the, the bad guys were the same. So when we look at how we protect our networks, we, we're looking, we're, we're preaching the same thing now that we did 30 years ago. You know, when we look at who the bad guys are, what the methodologies are that they use, the same basic, you know, at, at the bottom level, the methodology is exactly the same. So when you look at, you know, look at uh, either financially motivated organized crime or at nation state actors uh, activity, you realize, you know who they are. They're the same people. Their, their methodologies are the same. All they're doing is, is, is different ways of getting in and, and automated ways of, of completing the, those same tasks. 
So when you look at where are things bad, nation state versus nation state, you know who the actors are, you know how they're going to do something. You simply have to take a look at, okay, what is the latest methodology of what they're doing and, and apply that to you know, predicting the future, you know, to, to your point. You know, where, where would I go knowing who that bad guy is and knowing how he operates, knowing what his, his MO is, you know, where is he going to go? And at the same time, through understanding what their methodology is, understanding what, what those you know, individual traits are that, that they like to exploit, where do I need to look or where can I communicate to, to those people guarding that network or that system? <laughs> where do you look and what do you look for in, in identifying where these bad guys are. Again, they're not doing something we haven't seen. It's the same thing that we've seen for decades. You just need to understand, okay, where, <clears throat> in, in, through intelligence, where do we see them moving to? You know, they, they, send out, they send out scouts, if you will, you know, in, in the cyber world, you know, comparing the physical world to the cyber world. They send out scouts to where they want to go to, you know, the, the piece of property, the area that they want to go to. You're going to pick up on in individual uh, things happening in an area maybe you haven't seen before. But understanding who these bad guys are and, 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 and concentrating um, on you know, what am I seeing? What does this mean? You know, knowing who these bad guys are, knowing that they're looking at this particular area, this particular type of system, this particular type of network, understanding how they operate, what are they going to be doing there? What should we be looking at? That's, that's how you predict future. It's just knowing your opponent and, and, and looking at where he's going and understanding that sequence of events from that first scouting mission to compromise or control of the network. It's just applying what you know to what you're seeing. Yeah, man, for sure. So, so real quick, before we go to a break, like for people that don't know, you, you know, you had, you ran, you know, cold case homicides for a long time, right? Like you, you, you specialize there. And if, if I recall, you apply the same mindset of like, you know, things don't change, right? They're the same. Like, what was your conviction rate in homicides? Um, at this point, it's 100%. When, when I retired, there was one case that, that had not been solved that we knew who the bad guy was, just didn't get evidence, and, and guys that followed me um, got the evidence. So at this point, it's 100%, Andy. Beautiful, right? But I think it speaks to applying the same thought process, right, in the physical type of investigation, right, in traditional law enforcement investigations, right, that, that mindset and that thought process works, right? So Absolutely. I appreciate you. Cool. All right, folks, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, retired cyber investigator, Mr. Dave Ostertag. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., 
Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with a retired cyber investigator, Mr. Dave Ostertag. Well, Dave, look, buddy, you're, you know, you're a world-renowned teacher. You've mentored many of the world's best investigators. Like, w- what would be something you would tell, you know, someone getting into the game? Sure, Andy. I, I, um, one of the things I, I would do is sit down and, and, and talk to a group of new investigators, similar to what I would do with new detectives. And, the thought process here and what I would teach is think of a brand new police officer that's 21, 22 years old. And some of the things that they have to walk into, you know, a mass casualty disaster, mass shooting incident, having to tell parents that, that a child died, um, you know, a, a school bus accidents with, with dozens of kids on the bus possibly injured. Those situations that that a young police officer walks into where no one can prepare you for it. There's no class you can go to to, to prepare you, you know, for that specific incident. Like, you know, you might have experienced other bad things and you've gone through tra- your, your, your law enforcement training. You're in this position that nobody has thought of or, or can prepare for. And many times in that situation, you know, there are people, multiples of your age, looking at you to, um, to, to, to lead them through this situation. So what I taught them is the same thing that I tell, um, you know, young cyber investigators is people are, are not going to know what your level of experience is. People are not going to know what you know, how prepared you are. They're not going to know the fact that your stomach is churning just like theirs and your head is spinning just like theirs. What they're looking at is, is that uniform, you know, and, and that persona that you represent. And they, when they think of that uniform, they think of somebody that's a leader, someone that can get us through this, someone that, that has been there before. Same thing with a cyber investigator. You're walking into, a, you know, either a government agency or um, or a, a major business, and, and a CEO and, and the board of directors, or, or you know, all of these C levels are are looking at you at the end of the table. 
while their whole world is crumbling around them. They're losing their business. They're, you know, potentially losing their job and, and things are awful. And they look at you walking through that door. It's just as people with at that police officer, they don't know, you know, that, that you're not aware of what the situation is yet. Your stomach is churning. This is the largest case you've ever been to. You know, these are very important people. All they see is that professional walking through the door. So just understand this, that you need to act like you've been there before, okay? They expect that persona, that, that investigator, to, to act in a certain way, to be a professional. So just act like that, like you, you, you've been there before. Even though you, you may not have seen this specific incident before, you're there for a reason, okay? You would not be in that position if, if someone didn't feel that you're qualified. So just follow through on, on what you know before, follow through on what you've done before, act like you've been there, act like a professional and, and lead these people through. You know, you, you're going to get there. Um, again, they're not going to, you know, at that point, not going to know. As time goes on, you know, you're going to be learning together because you, you may be in a situation that you've never seen before. But again, your training, your knowledge, your experience is going to, it's going to guide you through it. Chances are you're going to make the right decision. Sometimes you don't, you know, when you just say, okay, well, we're going to try it another way on a different day. That's all. Man, it's it's such good advice, and 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 listen, I've had to call you <laughs> while I'm out there doing that myself. So, and it's always kind of put me, you know, put me back in the right frame of my mind when you're you're out there for a couple weeks, you know, no sleep, stress high, you know, the stress is high, and you've got to be able to, you know, stay at the game when you're, you know, you're just you're the person everyone's looking to. How important has it been, you know, for you to? be a part of teams that, you know, have that same mindset, like you know, how do you build those teams um, to get and get people rallied around that, that idea of like, you've got people to call, like you're not in this by yourself. Like if you're going to be that professional and you're going to be the one that's going to have the spotlight on you and you got to be the leader that walks you through, but you're also not alone going through that process. Like how does that play out? Well, sure. And the, and, and the, Team is important. You know, it's not, and again, when you think of team, you know, that has different concentric circles between, you know, the, your, your specific team, but then your, your greater team as you bring in potentially other vendors to work with you, other teams to work with you and, and incorporate the customer as, as a team also or the, or the victim as a team. And when you look at that team, you, you have to understand that everyone on the team is not equal. Everyone on the team is not necessarily have the same skill set. You know, you have a team because there are different, different people within the team with different backgrounds, different viewpoints, different areas of expertise. You know, as, as I've built multiple teams through the years, you know, I've always looked at not building the team of clones. You know, I don't want to hire people that look just like me or act just like me. I want to hire people that are completely different than me, that bring a different viewpoint, that bring a different background, that bring different experience levels, you know, bring people in from the military, people in from private industry. You know, I took a look at one time at, at, at a guy that's one of the, the, the greatest forensic investigators I know that was designing uh, um, circuits 
before he came on 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 our team, you know, integrated circuits. You know, he brought that understanding of 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 different pieces of an integrated circuit to the team that that, that, that you know is a, is a more basic level than even a computer system is. So bring in those people from different parts of the the, the world that bring in the, the cultural differences. You know, the, the, there are times that I've worked investigations where, you know, we, we, the investigation slowed down because of cultural issues. So having someone that understands the culture and can get past, you know, some of those issues is, is important. So we can always teach somebody, you know, the, the, the steps to take in, in forensics, but we, what you need at the bottom is, is, a certain level of motivation, a certain level of being a, a self-starter, a certain level of determination. You know, one of the greatest uh, assets of a, of a great investigator investigator is that is dogged determination. I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to I'm going to come at it from different angles until I get there. Um, right. So, so to me, building a team is is bringing in people from a different background, and then showing them how to work together and, and showing them um, success. Probably one of the biggest team builders in, in, is, is showing success, you know, and, and once you get a taste of that success, you, you want it again and again. Well, man, <clears throat> I appreciate everything you've done for me over the years. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Dave. Thanks, buddy. No, no worries, Andy. I, I, w- I would just say this in closing to everybody. Share what you know. You know, it's important to do that. As we look at the future and you look at where cyber investigations are, there's going to be a lot of people coming into this industry that don't have the background that you have. Please share your knowledge, share your information with each other. That, that's, that's the only way we're going to win. Well said. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.